Hey adventurers, Patrick here. Before we get started with episode 73, I wanted to take a moment to talk about something that is very important to me. Now, don't worry, I'll keep it short. My daughter was born with a FOXC1 gene deletion, which, let me explain. Our genetic code is made up of all sorts of genes. Think of them like dots on a grid, and each dot represents something about who you are. One particular gene might determine whether you have blue eyes or green eyes, and what you end up with is dependent on whether you grab that gene from mom or dad while you were a bun in the oven, so to speak. A gene deletion, to my understanding, is when a gene has a mutation or is absent entirely, like the baby in utero went to grab that gene to determine who they are, and they just missed. When my daughter was born, they cleaned her up and held her up for us to see for like three seconds, and they took her out of the room. Call it naivety, but we didn't think much of it, and the hospital soon explained that her eyes were cloudy and they weren't certain as to why. So they called Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, and a surgeon named Dr. Nischel said to bring her in as soon as possible. Upon meeting Dr. Nischel the next day, he explained that he knew exactly what the issue was, and he assured us that he knew exactly how to treat it. It turns out that Sarah was born with a FOXC1 gene deletion. Now, this can have a number of implications, but in the case of my daughter, we were really lucky. The gene deletion had two major impacts. First, she basically doesn't have much of an iris, which is the colored portion of the eye that helps to block light. And also, she was born with glaucoma, which means her eyes were taking in the usual amount of fluid like everyone else, but they weren't draining the fluid fast enough, which causes pressure to the optic nerve, potentially damaging it. In fact, children born not that long ago would lose their vision on account of the damage to the optic nerve from this. By age four, my daughter had eight eye surgeries, including laser micropuncturing to release pressure and ultimately the insertion of tubes into the eyes, which drain excess fluid in an appropriate pace. Now, we're forever grateful for the intuition of the folks at Westmoreland Hospital and the hospitality of those at Children's and the expertise of Dr. Nischel. As far as we're concerned, their diligence saved Sarah's sight. Sarah's now in second grade and functions just like any other child, excelling in some areas, in fact. But there are long-term impacts. Obviously, she has glasses, but in sunlight, she needs sunglasses and visors. She's training to use a walking stick to help her with unfamiliar terrain, and she gets eye drops every morning and night. She also uses magnifiers to help her read what you and I might consider regular font size. Like, you know how when you do an eye chart and things start to get tough when you get to line 6 or 7? It gets tough for her around line 2. So why tell you all of this? Well, two months ago, Jamie Stegmeyer from Stonemeyer Games got in touch with me as they were gearing up for the 2022 charity auction. He lists several items, and whatever the winning bid is goes directly to charity combined with a matching donation from FulfillRight, which is a Kickstarter fulfillment service, as well as a matching donation from Stonemeyer Games. We were given the privilege of selecting a charity for one of these items as well, which King Scott so generously allowed me to choose. And the charity that I selected is Vision Enhancement Resources of UPMC. You see, all those extra things that my daughter has needed, be it special visors, lenses, magnifiers, Magnalink, walking sticks, occupational therapy, eye drops, etc., they all cost money. And while it hasn't been an issue for our family, there are many who can't afford these resources, and I can tell you after seven and a half years, they're absolutely vital. The purpose of this charity is to help families who have a newborn with vision issues and can't afford them. I was in contact with Children's Hospital directly and selected this charity because I know how important it is and I can't imagine not having access to these things. Furthermore, the overseer of the funds is Dr. Nischel himself, so I know that any and all funds in the charity are being put to work in the right way, directly to benefit these children and their families. So, we're not the podcast that asks listeners for money. We talk gaming because we love it and we don't need anyone to pay us for it. That said, if you want a good way to support the show, this 
is it. Now, the item up for auction from Stonemaier Games with all funds designated to this charity is the Wingspan Asia Expansion. But get this, the winners of the listing Stonemaier has up for grabs are also going to get the nesting box with Wingspan Asia inside, and these things are individually numbered 1 to 10. You're going to get the Viticulture Wine Crate with Viticulture World inside, a copy of Libertalia Winds of Gale Crest, individually numbered 1 through 10. You're going to get a pack of Golden Metal Eggs for your Wingspan game made especially for this auction. You get an amazing playmat for Red Rising, and you're going to get the Stonemeyer Signature Disc Golf Disc, signed by the person whose name is on the disc, all with free shipping anywhere in the world, customs included. So what if you're like, I got a couple extra bucks, but these listings get really expensive. Check this out. You can participate without even bidding. Just give the listing a thumbs up. What does that do? Stonemeyer Games is going to donate an extra buck to the charity for every thumbs up we get. So even if you don't think you can win the auction, even if you don't have the money right now, get on there and give us a thumbs up. You can help make a difference. Now for the show. If our listing gets the most thumbs, we get a copy of the Wingspan Asia expansion, which we're promptly going to give away to one of you folks who give a thumbs up to the listing. Plus, we're going to send you one of our ball caps. These are what we wear to conventions and meetups. Let's call it the official uniform hat of Level Up. Now, our show notes normally include links to our Facebook, Instagram, or website, and a blurb about what's in store, but today it's just a link to the charity auction. I have to ask you, please, take a moment, open your phone, click on the podcast app that you're listening from, go to those show notes, and click the link. Give us that thumbs up. Check out the other items while you're on there, and check out some of the amazing charities selected by other fantastic content creators. While we can't directly thank everyone that gives us thumbs up or places a bit at some point, I want you to know that this is far and away the most important thing that the show's ever taken part in. We're humbled and grateful to Stonemeyer Games for providing this charity auction, and we're so thankful for you, adventurer. You are a part of a community that makes a difference, so from the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Now we've got an episode, Chock Full of Gaming, episode 73, let's do it! Welcome, adventurer, to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 73 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. This is Patrick. And this is Scott. And Scott, wait. What? <laughs> You're King Scott. <laughs> That's up for debate right now. Oh, you've been dethroned? So, well, this is something I need to throw out to the adventurers here because I have been honored for 15 years to work at the Renaissance Festival. I think it's time to take a step back here from it. It's It's been fun. You don't want to get to the point where it's not fun anymore and mm-hmm. then they have to add that oh, we got to talk about scott conversation yeah uh yeah. so i decided to relinquish my duties as king you've hung up your crown i've abdicated the throne yes are you so, still going to do the renaissance festival uh well i'm not going to do it next year we have a new person going to be king and i want him to run with it i want him to mm-hmm. make his own character his own decisions I don't want me to be uh, a distraction for him feeling comfortable with what he's doing. Just take a step back from it. And then uh, next year after that, 
maybe go back to it and come up with something else to do. Go for a different role, sure. So the big thing here is I got to ask the adventurers here, please let me know. Can I still be King Scott or am I just Scott now? So Send that's, messages that's a big immediately. Thing. <laughs> Scott, I tell you, I saw you there on Sunday this past week and I'm walking in and they, they have what's called, uh, what was it? The, the Ragnarok challenge or the Ragnarok hang or oh, something? Oh, yes, yes. It's basically a pull-up bar. And mm-hmm. you're not allowed to do pull-ups or like go above it. You just you just hang on it. Your arm's got to be fully outstretched. You just hang on it. Your grip has to either be both overhand or both underhand, not one of each. And mm-hmm. the goal is – it costs 10 bucks. The goal is if you can hang on there for two minutes, you get $100. Or if you break today's record, you get $50. And at that point, the record for the day was 52 seconds, right? And I was like, right. I can hang on this thing all day, right? I, I, just, I feel like I can do this. But I didn't try. I, I watched and there were younger, more in shape folks trying this and they couldn't do it. But I was Ooh. I was still convinced. I was like, no way. This, there's just no way. These guys, they're gripping it wrong. Something's, something's not right here. It was bothering me all day. So I went home, <laughs> went up to the rafters in the garage and I had this old piece of plumbing pipe that I used for doing some pull-ups. And I was like, you know what? I, I got to know. I just, I got to know. So I grabbed Your own it. personal Ragnarok. I made it about 10 seconds. And I was, like, I probably could have gone 25, but like 10 seconds in, I was like, yep, nope, this is hard. And got up. I was like, <laughs> glad I didn't spend the 10 bucks. It is kind of funny, though, because we ran into – well, Lana was there. I ran into Lana, and then we ran into – and it's kind of funny that you have to stay in character. So I can talk to you about anything, and you, you still have mm-hmm. to be like, oh, yes, I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> People can hand us phones and we're like, oh, look at this fairy box. Yeah, exactly. Well, today's episode was supposed to be with Will. You know, we had plans whenever we were doing the Familiars and Foes episode last week. We were like, yeah, hang out with us next week. We're going to have Will Brown, Hungry Gamer. We're going to be doing uh, God Tier was was the game. We just yes. didn't get that coordinated yet. So, adventurers, if you came here hoping for our God Tier review, hopefully next week. It's really hard to coordinate three people and getting in the same game and whatnot, but we'll get there. In the meanwhile, we do have a pretty full episode today. We've got some recent plays. We're going to be talking about the new one from Inside Up Games, Block and Key. Andrew visits us. And then finally, I'm going to talk about an adventure on the horizon called Cosmoctopus. Okay, that one there, I saw that on the notes. Mm -hmm. I am thoroughly intrigued because octopuses, octopi, whatever whatever the hell the plural is, Mm -hmm. they kind of like I'm entranced by them. I'm interested in them. But in the same hand, they absolutely repulse me. Yeah, they're gross. They're kind of terrifying. <laughs> I would not want to touch one ever. No. <laughs> and what was that movie, uh, Old Boy? I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but the mm. guy in it was like locked up in this room for I forget how many years or whatever. Broke out. He goes to this sushi bar. They put an octopus out in front of him. He picks it up and eats it. And all the time while he's eating it, the tentacles are sticking to his face as he's Ugh. eating it. It's actually alive. And I'm, I, I, I don't get it. I really don't. Japan, explain something to me. I, I don't know. Scott, have you been watching The Boys? Oh, my, yes. Okay. I love The Boys. So do I need to say anything more about an octopus? 
<laughs> nope. What are you doing here? Nothing. I'm not doing anything. Why would you even... This octopus was sick. Why would you ask Homelander is gonna love this. No, no, no. Wait, 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 wait. Please, please, please stop. So, speaking of movies, I have not seen Old Boy, but uh, you did mention, uh, what was it, They Live last episode, last regular yes. episode. So, I went on the TV and I searched They Live and I couldn't get it. The only thing that was showing it I needed a subscription for and I was like, well... Going to have to borrow this one from Mike or something. So I, I still haven't watched it, but I understand you've been putting the game together. Consume? Oh, my, yes. What's the game? It's called They Live. The box says they Consume live, on it, but it's called They Live. Yeah, it's They Live Assault on Cable 54. So if you've seen the movie, you know there's a whole thing with the uh, television station and, and different things like that. Mm -hmm. So the general idea is that aliens have come to Earth and they are putting subliminal messages in everything around us, in advertising, in all the things around. Uh, but you can't actually see it. Well, in comes Nada or uh, Roddy Roddy Piper. Yes. He comes into town and he meets these people and he finds this box of sunglasses. And he puts these sunglasses on and boom. He sees all the subliminal messages. I see. Consume, reproduce, all these different things all over the walls on TV. And he gets to see what the face of the aliens look like. Hmm. Yeah, they have an acne problem. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so, so you busted this one out. I understand you have like the glasses work with something on the sleeves. He said oh, it was yes, a bit yes. of a challenge actually getting everything set up. He said a bunch of stuff. Oh, crammed my. In that I box. mean, I opened up the box and it's crammed pack full of stuff i mean there are cards galore in this game i haven't really dug into it yet but the other night i took probably an hour and a half an hour and 45 minutes sleeving close to 130 135 cards or something with like those old perfect fit cards mm -hmm. uh sleeves yeah number one the cards are a little fiddly so whenever you put them in, they bend easily. So you got to be uh, careful yeah. with that. Mm -hmm. Plus, on top of that, you have to know whether or not the cards are going to help the aliens or the humans. So there's a little square up on the top corner that you have to peel a little piece of plastic off. So whenever you take on, put on the sunglasses, you can see whether it's human or alien. Oh, that's how it works. Yes. So, yes, it took me forever just to sleeve those cards. So mm. it was it was a challenge. But uh, I'm going to get a chance to take a look at it early next week, really dig into that game, hopefully get a review up on it very, very soon then as well. Well, Scott, we got some cool things on the old crowdfunding. Uh, did you see Terraforming Mars the Dice Game is live yes. on Kickstarter? How do you feel about I that? I did. I did see that. And I'm a Terraforming Mars junkie. I mean, anything <laughs> that comes out, I got to get it. But this one here, I don't know. I don't know if I really want to dig into this one. It makes me wonder if maybe they came out with Ares Expedition. It was supposed to be like the expedited version, which I think it was. It does play faster. But oh, yeah. if you look at the comments on BG, there are a lot of folks who are like, it plays in the same amount of time. It's no quicker. Maybe this is their way of like, okay, we're going to make this fast. Come hell or high water, dice game. Boom. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where I feel that they're almost distilling it down to something so simple it doesn't feel like terraforming mars like anymore. it's supposed to be a grandiose epic long game it's like twilight imperium the dice game how would you like that uh, you know what i'd go for it just because like i'm intrigued by the <laughs> roll and write right 
so, yeah, you know, they could make anything and I'll be in. It says here, one to four players, 45 minute playtime for the Terraforming Mars dice game. Hmm. Yeah, that's that almost seems like it's getting very close to overstaying its welcome for a dice game. Eh, that's a good point. That's a good point. For that matter, how much more can they milk out of the old Terraforming Mars cash cow? <laughs> very true. Very true. I think Terraforming Jupiter should be coming around soon. Tainted Grail is back on not, oh not Kickstarter, GameFound, with an all-new campaign. They have Tainted Grail, The Kings of Ruin. Uh, it's Boy, what a game. It's it's Honestly, it's best as a solo experience. I think I talked about this way back in episode 10. We did uh, sort of our adventures in mm -hmm. solo land, which we haven't done in a long time. But I'm looking over this campaign. Dude, you can get the original core box with the stretch goals, which is an equally large box, 110. Right. 110. The oh, new wow. stuff, you get uh, the Kings of Ruin game, plus you get the uh, the Kings of Ruin, what the, like the little, exp it's the core box, plus all the uh, the stretch goals, 99 bucks. Wow. Considering the size of the box and the fact that like, I mean, you go to your, your friendly local game store and some very small, simple boxes are $60. It's like, well, geez, mm -hmm. this should be 150 And it comes with a stretch goals box. What a deal. Wow, that's and amazing. What a game. I'm I am eyeing this up. I actually I sold my Tainted Grail after playing through the campaign. It's like, yeah, I don't see me playing another character through, but you know, Kings of Ruin, new story. Yeah, I think I could get behind that. <laughs> they got their hooks in you. I did see pictures on the social media places. That you had in the social box. media. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. War Room came in, the Larry Harris game, uh, the designer of Axis and Allies and, and all of its iterations. He has War Room, which is sort of the big brother, an even longer game. Uh, no little miniature pieces. They're all, they're not chits like War Game chits. They're plastic mm -hmm. and they're stackable. I've only okay. at this point watched a couple of videos. I haven't gotten it to the table yet, but I got all the stickers on all the plastic pieces like, we're ready to rumble. It's just coming up with that day and the right group where it's almost like a Twilight Imperium experience where I've got to have the right group of people that are willing to sit mm -hmm. and learn a, a relatively complex game and spend a long time with it. But it came and, dude, this box is humongous. So I put up the picture <laughs> and I was like, all right, guys, tell me about some big boxes. And we actually have a pretty fun list here. Um, well, first, Scott, any big boxes? A big, big board game box. Tell me, what do you – what comes to mind? Well, there is one uh, Star Trek Fleet Captains mm -hmm. that has like 20 different Starfleet and Klingon ships, plus all the hexagon pieces to put out, plus all the cards to go out. I mean, it's it's a pretty a substantial box that you got there. But I don't know if it's anything that really matches what you're saying there. What other ones did they come up with? Yeah, Adventures gave us some of their thoughts. They said uh, Starcraft. Do you remember Starcraft? It's an, oh, that's yes. an oldie, yeah. but that's the old coffin box. Same with uh, something like Axis and Allies Anniversary Edition. Fortune and Glory was a big box. Mm, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. A bunch of people were saying Anachrony. I know they have that Anachrony like all in, but what do they call the big Anachrony box? Uh, it's, it's a vein. I'm not going to look it up, but Anachrony I, has yeah. like a special edition box, which is massive, much like the, uh, the scythe box. Have you ever seen the scythe box? Oh, that yes, fits yes. All the Well, I have the, uh, terraforming Mars big box. Oh yeah. There you go. That's a big one. Uh, yeah. treasure trove from too many bones. I think they call it the, the treasure trove. It like, oh, it's yes, literally yes. designed as a cube to fit in one calyx shelf. Like 
and it's not like, oh, that was a happy coincidence. They designed it so that it would slide perfectly into your calyx and then like the trays for gameplay slide out like drawers. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, hate. Hate was a big one. Oh, yes. Uh, Kingdom Death Monster and the classic Gloomhaven, which is actually smaller than the uh, Frosthaven box. Remember well, seeing that at Origins? It's oh, like oh, three gosh. inches taller than the Gloomhaven box. And then the other thing that's really amazing is as far as role playing, I know that they did this, uh, what is it, Modifius Entertainment. They did mm-hmm. for Star Trek role playing, they made a huge Borg cube that you Ooh. can open up with shelves inside and drawers to open things up for all your dice and all this other stuff. They come up with some pretty interesting things there. One of the other ones that we got a bit of was Foundations of Rome, which, if you're okay with it, can segue into recent adventures Look because I finally I had the like chance it. to play oh, this one. You did get a chance okay. to play it. Yeah, I played this one with Ryan. Let's let's go over Foundations of Rome. This is an Emerson Matsuchi game from Arcane Wonders in 2022. From BGG, the city-building board game Foundations of Rome puts you into the role of an architect competing to own land and build magnificent structures. Build Domus and insulae, don't <laughs> fountains, foundries, and more to increase your renown, gaining glory for yourself and the empire. With ninety-six wonderfully detailed miniatures in the base game, Foundations of Rome is a testament to the glory of Rome that you can bring to the table. Uh, <laughs> and from the Gladiator movie, <laughs> how about this? Do you know Maximus? Do you remember he had the uh, the pet wolf in the movie? Oh yes. Like, he, he had a wolf in that war scene in the beginning. Okay, so we have to find fun ways to tie in the game to something that people care about, you know, add some flavor, right? Mm-hmm. So I found this out. That pet wolf, uh, the production company, they weren't allowed to use an actual wolf due to England's laws oh against importing wolves. So instead, a Tervuren Belgian shepherd dog played the role of the wolf. How about that? Wow. I... Yeah, I was thinking like it'll be digital, but it's a dog. Hmm. Now, maybe we get we get our fair share of downloads from England. So if you're listening and you're from across the pond, uh, why does England have laws against importing wolves? Like that leads me to believe that it was a problem at some point. Yeah, whenever there's rules against <laughs> something, somebody did something to cause that rule to be made. <laughs> so, somebody like every weekend they got more wolves coming. Uh. <laughs> Okay, let's uh, let's get back to Foundations yes. Room. As we all know by now, this is the game that gives like PEDs to the toy factor in a board game, right? You've got this gigantic box, storage trays for each player, housing the various buildings they get to construct. No question, the production here is nice. Yes. The issue that some folks have uh, is suggested that the gameplay in this one doesn't quite live up to the expectations considering the price, considering the look of it. Like, okay, I, I got in War Room, which admittedly is not as well produced as Foundations of Rome, but it is a quality production. If I'm opening a box like that, I am expecting some kind of like, wow, this gameplay blew me away. Mm-hmm. It kept me captivated. It's deep. It's epic, right? So I think a lot of folks are like, wait a minute. This isn't epic. This, this is a relatively quick game. You know, just does it live up to it, right? So Foundations of Rome has this quality production. I wanted to dig into the gameplay of it. And to be a little bit more objective, the toy factor here didn't create a bias because I was taught this one on good old TTS from teacher Ryan. So All I did right. not get to fiddle with the Roman building 
things and whatnot. Scott, the bulk of the game is going to be purchasing cards from a market row that represents spaces on a grid. Think like acquire, A1, A2, F6, that sort of thing. So the game's going to be split into three eras, and in each era, a number of deed cards are available in a market of six. So you've got your Mm -hmm. era one deed deck of, say, 13 cards. You flip up six of them, and you put them into your market row. And like you'd expect, the deed farthest to the left is the cheapest, and they become a little bit more expensive the further to the right you go. All right. When a deed's purchased, all the cards are going to slide to the left, and a new one's added, like, like a river, right? Each era of the game, of the three, they're going to end when all of the deed cards from the era are purchased, depleted, used up. So player turn. This is simple. You can buy a deed, you can build a building, or you can take income. Okay. Buying a deed, it's just what I went over. You pay coins, you take the card, and you put a little marker in the appropriate space on the grid board. So if you bought the one for C4, then you take a little mark and you put it on C4. Building a building is really easy, too, and it works like this. Suppose I have a marker on B5 and C5. Mm-hmm. I can replace those with a little two-by – like with a two-by-one building, okay. like a building that takes up two spaces in a row, be it horizontal or vertical. Later on, if you have the means to upgrade that building into one even bigger, say a four-by-one because, oh, I bought the deeds for the two spaces next to that. Oh, that's another option whenever you build a building. All right. When you place a building – the area of your player trade that it came from, it has a bonus on it, like income typically or points, which it's going to help you buy more deeds. It'll have population, which can score you points at the end of round. There's a bonus for having the most population. Right. Or you might, when you place your building, you might unveil uh, some end, like end of round scoring specific things. So you might find on the civic buildings that you build. Um, like one might say, uh, this this building at the end of the round, you're going to score a point for every building that's adjacent okay. to it, right? So there might be a reason to build that one instead of another. The third option on the turn is to take income, which easy as well. You get five coins and then however many you've unveiled from building, build it. Oh, I built these two buildings and there's three coins showing underneath them. Okay. So I get my five plus three. Right. My taking income gave me eight. That is the game. That that is foundations of Rome. So inevitably, you know, the question then is, well, where's where's the meat of the game? Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be some contention over some of the deed cards that are out, especially as the board gets a little bit more cluttered. If three players each have a marker on the board surrounding D2, then they're all probably going to want it for the opportunity not only to build a building there for themselves, but also to block someone else from grabbing sure. it. So there's some meat there. What's that worth to the other players? What if the deed card is the most expensive in the market? Uh, it's going to slowly work its way to the left if people buy other things. At what point do you pull the trigger? You know, Finding the value in that space uh, to buy a deed, for example, there's a lot of gameplay there. Also, the end of round scoring, uh, it gives a bonus for whoever has the highest population. Okay. Um, population in and of itself doesn't really do anything, but at the end of the round, whoever has the highest population, they're going to score for their amount plus a bonus. Now, population is strictly gained by building the buildings and unveiling it on your player tray. So it's not difficult to gain them. There's no secret sauce here to being the best at, at like creating population. Mm-hmm. But there, those victory points, they do matter. That introduces a timing element to the game where I might have more population than you do. So maybe I want to burn through those deeds and like force the end of the era while I have the higher population. But what if you build a building and you pull ahead on population when you made that that construction? I got to factor that in too. So there is a little bit of interplay and I do like that. So I I hear you talking about this and it seems pretty straightforward. It's it's an easy Mm -hmm. game. It looks amazing and everything. But if someone's sitting in this FLGS looking at it thinking, 
I should buy this. What are your pros and cons on this game? You know, I'm going to answer both questions. Sounds like pros and cons and a recommendation. So let's uh, let's talk about what we like here. The trays. Trays that come with it. Now, granted, I played on TTS, mm. but I know that the purpose of all the buildings, the trays and whatnot, uh, the 3D element is to make the game set up and tear down quick and easy. Right. And you know why I know this? Why do you know this? <laughs> Our media meetup oh, at Origins. You're, yeah, you know exactly where I'm going with this. So we're... We're sitting at this table, and there's this dude there that neither of us know. His name was Eric, and you and I are just chatting. I'm like, yeah, no, Foundations of Rome, you know, I, I, I saw a look at that, and I just can't pull the trigger because, man, people aren't getting that. It's overproduced. And then we're chatting, and this guy, Eric, turns out he works with Arcane Wonders. <laughs> yeah, I can <laughs> tell whenever he gave me that look. <laughs> didn't click with us we didn't know that he was like the arcane wonders guy until like afterwards you're like you know you just said all that stuff like right in front of eric and eric uh he's he's arcane wonders oh so <laughs> the next day i go by the arcane wonders booth and i was like hey um yeah i have egg on my face and here's why and you know i I'm just going off of what I've heard. Mm -hmm. You know, what are your thoughts on, you know, I'm sure you've heard this before. What do you think? And Eric's explanation was that, you know, it is possible to make this game with chits, with cardboard tokens and whatnot. And he said that we were finding sure. and testing and added about a half an hour to set up and tear down. He said, you can't make a game that plays in 45 minutes and have, mm. expect people to true, true. To have almost that same amount of time setting it up and tearing it down. So he said, this way you pull out your tray, you're ready to go. And it's hard to justify a financial price to that. Yet time is money like that. It yeah. makes sense. Like, okay, if we can find a way to make the game more accessible, even if it costs a little bit more money to do so, makes sense. So I, I guess I like the trays. I, I don't necessarily love the cost that it adds, but I do like the fact that they were mindful of the setup and teardown time. Scott, this game's easy to teach. No one's going to get lost in the mechanisms, uh, triggered abilities, static effects, nothing like that. It is not a hard game. The toy factor here is real, <laughs> and I like it. I, I'm sorry. I'm 38 years old. I like toys. I have Ninja Turtle action figures hanging on the wall in my game room. My wife and I, we have an unhealthy obsession with Star Wars Legos, Nothing right? I like toys. Thank you. And Foundations of Rome, it is like it is tier one. Uh, it is king of the hill for the cool factor with toys in a game between the building, the, tr the buildings, the trays, etc. It looks great on the table. So what don't we like here? All right. The board is literally a grid of numbers and letters. And mm -hmm. I'm talking like black squares with white letters and well, right. numbers and letters. I'm sure that's a graphic design decision that they wanted to go with ease of play, right? But it just sure. looks meh. Now, they surrounded it with some Roman-looking scenery, but considering the rest of the overall great production, eh, the board's very plain. And Ryan mentioned as we were playing, and I agree, the cards are basically a white card with big black letters that say B5, E3. <laughs> and if you look like kind of an, an off-white in the background, there's like Roman hieroglyphs, not hieroglyphs, but like Roman lettering or yeah, something. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen some art on there. Even if it's just like some dudes lifting stones or you know, some gladius, sure, give me sure, some sure, art sure. in the corner. It's just a white card with, with big letters. So again, considering the expectation, what with the buildings, the nice big pretty box, that was kind of like – Eh, this this is unexciting, these cards. Right, now you also, right. You also ask, okay, so we're in the store and somebody's eyeing this up. Uh, am, am I going to recommend it? This game's 200 bucks, right? So mm -hmm. it's tough. 
for me, it's a firm no. Uh, I, right. but I can't get, for me, it's just the amount of money that it costs for, for what I'm getting as far as the gameplay goes, but I can't spend other people's money. And it's a tough question to answer because the gameplay is good. It plays fast. It looks great. You're going to be able to break it out with casuals, hardcore gamers. You can have a good time in either case, but we can say that about a lot of games. Sure, 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 sure. Definitely. We can say it about games that cost 35 bucks too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You ever go to a fancy restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, we're going on and a you tangent. Look, right? You look over the menu and the prices are like, whoa, like the lobster is $100, right? Yes. That might be the best lobster you're ever going to eat. But damn it, man, I get a really good one from Red Lobster for 30 bucks. <laughs> Do I recommend the expensive lobster? I mean, after all, it was really satisfying. It was the best one I've ever had. That's kind of the conundrum that we have with Foundations of Rome. It, it's very good for what it is. I think for myself, I'd rather get four really good games. I can get Brass, Dune Imperium, Root, and The Crew, and mm. still have money left over for my <laughs> for my Red Lobster $35 There you lobster. go. Uh, fun game. I'm glad I got to play it. Uh, I think those that, that like it will love it. People that buy it, I don't think that they're going to be disappointed by the gameplay, but it is admittedly expensive for what it is. That, it sounds like it, Yes. But yeah, it's it's one I'm gonna have to explore at some point in time. I mean, you said acquire and acquire. I love that game. It really speaks to me. I really like the intricacy of that game. I there's just something about it. Boring as hell to look at, but yeah. I love the game. Scott, I think you would love Foundations of Rome. To be honest with you, it, it's it's not overly complex. Not that you're opposed to that, but your sweet spot does tend to be games that you can quickly introduce to people. You know they're gonna have fun, and you can kind of wing it and still do it like you don't have to like strain your brain to come up with a good play Mm -hmm. um you know it's it's quick you know your decisions you have good meaty decisions to make but it's not something you have to rack your brain over i feel like you'd you'd actually really like this why don't you buy it i'll keep my eyes open for it then one of the most popular games in the hobby and the oldest in the BGG Top 100 is Crokinole. And at Level Up, we're big fans. Oh, yeah. Most of our meetups have a Crokinole board set up and ready for action. Our choice for anything and everything Crokinole is Brown Castle Games. Brown Castle is a family owned company that produces boards of unmatched quality. With a circular frame, a variety of hardware veneer playing surfaces, and a professional edge banding, let me tell you, these boards stand out. Oh, no doubt, Scott. And along with your board, Brown Castle has the best Crokinole accessories I have ever seen. The discs, the holders, the carrying case, they make the best. Yes, they do. Adventurers, you know our style. When we partner with someone, it's to get savings for you. Exclusively mm-hmm. for adventurers, get 5% off anything and everything from Brown Castle Games. The boards, cases, accessories, you name it. Get 5% off with promo code LEVEL5, L-E-V-E-L, the number 5, all caps, no spaces. Find it all at www.browncastlegames.com. So, I got a chance to play an old, old discontinued game. This isn't <laughs> uh, a level back. I know, I know, but still, I'm, I'm going to talk about it, so... I have the floor now. Be quiet. Tell you. Um, so anyway, I got to play uh, with my wife. I played Anachronism. 
This was a joint operation between TriKing Games, and I'll wait for it here, and the History Channel. And the History Channel? Yes. Oh, wait, I know this one. We played this at Origins. Uh, Yes, yes, we did this as well. But I played it again with my wife, and we Mm -hmm. played William Wallace versus Joan of Arc. So this game is really very simple, but in the same point, it's really kind of clever in how they play this game. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you have different historical figures. They could be either real-life figures or they could be fictional characters. Like I'm looking on the page right now. I'm looking. They have Beowulf. You have ones for Sun Tzu, you have ones for Blackbeard, you have ones for King Arthur. There's all sorts of different historical characters. And in very much like Unmatched, where you take different characters from different eras and put them together to fight, that's what this is like. So you could have Beowulf going up against Sun Tzu. You'll never see that happen, but hey, why not? Let's have some fun. So each character has five cards. That's it. The five cards are the warrior, so what your character is. Mm -hmm. They each have a weapon. They each have a special card, which could be armor, a shield, something different like that. They have an armor card, and then they have an inspiration card, which is kind of like a wild card. You have a board that you're playing on, and the board is made up of 16 squares in a Mm four-by-four grid. Your character card goes onto the grid. Whenever you go to move, each turn, you flip over first card, and then you take a look at up at the top left-hand corner at the initiative number. Whoever has a high initiative, they go that turn. Sure. So what will happen is you will move the card like you're moving a miniature. Mm-hmm. So you can use one action point to turn it. You can use one action point to move it ahead. And then you can attack. And the interesting thing here is on the top of the weapon card and on top of the character card, they have a little grid on the top of it. And they'll have a little red triangle. And then there'll be numbers in different places. All right. And what these numbers are, these are bonuses or negatives to what you need to roll to attack that person that's in that spot. Mm -hmm. So with Beowulf, you look at his, and he has a triangle. There's a plus four in front of him, a minus two to the top right, and a plus three, I believe it is, to the right. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at this, and basically he's going to be attacking you with a sword, and he's right-handed. So it shows how you want to line up the person that you're fighting against into that area to get the bonuses. Yeah, they get pretty technical with the the placing and the facing and whatnot. It's not overly convoluted. It's not complex. Like, it's all spelled out on the cards for you, but it does matter. Very much so. And then as you go along, you go the next turn. You flip over the next card. Now you have your character card, the first card you played, and then the second card that you played. So those (laughs) are all part of what you're actually working with to attack. Very simple game. It plays in 10 minutes, maybe. But... The great thing about this game is that it is discontinued. <laughs> that is and great. what I mean by that <laughs> is that we have a local distributor of discontinued games nearby here, and he has a ton of this stuff. And you can get it for, you can get a case of like 18 characters for maybe 10 bucks. Whoa. <laughs> uh, yes, it's fantastic. 
You can play um, it twice and throw it away. You got your money's worth. Exactly. And it's just so much fun to just mix things up here. It takes little to no time. It doesn't take up that much room on a tabletop. So you can play it very, very quickly. Take out, put out another one. Plus, they have little details of history uh, on the cards and everything. No, and, I don't want to learn. really Screw gets you that. into there. So. <laughs> Scott, I, this one's an interesting one because we have Funko and we have Unmatched that have mm-hmm. – now, 15 years later, I want to say this anachronism game. That was early 2000s, 2005. late 90s, 2005. Okay, so some 10, 12 years later, we have some successful, we'll say skirmish games, one-on-one skirmish games. Mm-hmm. And the difference is being that these ones – First of all, they have miniatures in the case right. of Unmatched or the Funko Pop little characters in the Funko Funkoverse game. That's one difference. And then aside from that, maybe it's that Unmatched and Funkoverse don't take themselves too seriously. I think part of their success is like, oh, look at this. It's Alice in Wonderland going against mm-hmm. raptors. How wild. Um, which <laughs> you know, I get it. If you love that, if that's your thing, great. But Anachronism sort of took itself a bit more seriously, didn't it? It did. It really went into a lot of the history. They would have two characters for each moment in history or Mm -hmm. each area of history that they were going into. It goes anywhere from ancient China to the Wild West, but they did take more historical type of characters that they used here. So I think that's where they, they had fun with it, but still kind of kept it grounded. It makes me wonder if it was to come out today. Now, granted, it, it, if it was to come out today, it might just be another one of those skirmish games. You know, they, they're mm-hmm. they're making so many games now that it, it might just blend in or fall by the wayside. But it does feel a lot like they took something like Unmatched and they they took it seriously. You know, it's not like oh well, look what happened. Like there aren't laugh out loud moments. It's more of like a Magic the Gathering. We're gonna you know I'm gonna sit down and outthink my opponent. And see if I can win, given the deck that I have. Mm-hmm. And I, I appreciated that. I, I'm kind of was kind of sad when we finished up to find out that this was an out of print dead system. Yeah, and one of my favorite uh, sets to play with. I can't remember the name. Uh, I think it was Ajax. I think it was, and he had this giant rock. That is a cleaner. That's a powder. No, that no, gets no, rid of no. Like- it was somebody else before <laughs> it was a cleaner. He had this giant rock. In the rock, you would pick it up. And drop it in different squares around the uh, around the board, and then the idea was you could move your character around, pick the rock up again, and throw it again at somebody else. It was absolutely hysterical. Whenever you're playing that game, there you're just throwing a rock, trying to drop it on the person and kill them. Something to maybe do a little research on if you can get your hands on it. Sounds like it's super cheap, and it gives you a little bit more of a serious take and competitive game in the unmatched Funkoverse vein style of yeah, play. I may have to put uh, something on Facebook where you guys can track this down. Well, Scott, as it turns out, I have another one that falls into the date night with Ryan on Tabletop Simulator, right? Okay, so Chris travels for work. My wife's on the road and my daughter goes to sleep. I get myself like an hour, hour and a half in the evening. And uh, that was a chance to hook up online and play a game that's been on my radar since Origins. And one that I'm pretty sure you were playing on Sovereignty called Planet Unknown. You've played this, didn't you? Yes. Yes, I did. Okay, well, let's start here. Sovereignty is an... Sovereignty is an, you know what? We're going to save the sovereignty chat for next time because I don't want to, I, I didn't write anything up and I don't want to, uh, to say the wrong thing, but sovereignty is 
like an online implementation. It's a service where you can play games online. Think BGA, but much cleaner, much like the graphic designs a little bit better. The interface is neater. Mm -hmm. uh, it remains to be seen uh, how – you know what? I'm not going to get into – the sovereignty talk because I, I think it's a good one to get whenever we have Will on board because he's in tune with what's going on with sovereignty. Let's do that. Let's yes. do that. If we can get Will on next week, we'll have him give us a little chat about sovereignty. So let's talk about Planet Unknown. This comes from Ryan Lambert and Adam Reberg. Uh, theme time. The planet is fresh out of resources and we need to look to the stars for a new beginning. One to six players are tasked with developing the best planet. Uh, this sounds familiar, right? But it's done differently in Planet Unknown. So let's talk a little bit about developing these planets. The start of the game, each player's got a planet board and an advancement board. Now, the planet's where you're going to be putting polyomino pieces. The advancement board, it's basically like five tracks that you go up throughout play, earning little bonuses and points in the process. More details on that to come. Primary mechanism of Planet Unknown revolves around... Yeah. <laughs> Hey, revolves, no uh, pun intended. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> we put a lot of time and energy into uh, into our shows. <laughs> Primary mechanism revolves around a lazy Susan in the middle of the table, which is uh, – okay, a lazy Susan, for folks that don't know, it's like a circle that spins. It's got a little apparatus on the underside, so it, it rotates. Whoa, lazy Susan. Mm -hmm. You see it for like – the kitchen cupboard in the like corner cupboards, you open oh, yes. it and it spins all the way. We have our spices. Okay, that's a lazy Susan. That goes in the middle of the table. It's divided into six, let's call them pie slices, each housing several different Tetris-shaped pieces. Now, one player holds the commander token. They're going to lead the round. They get to pick one of those slices and rotate the lazy Susan so that it is facing them. The Tetris-shaped pieces in that slice are in two stacks, and the, command, the commander token holder is simply going to pick the top tile from either one of those stacks and place it onto their planet. Now, obviously, the planet then must have a grid overlaying it, which it does, so you have to place within the grid, and as the game goes on, it could get a little bit trickier as your grid gets more and more filled out. Now, here's the thing. Selecting and placing a tile, that's simultaneous. And because of that, turns are lightning fast, and there's very little downtime, so if the commander's taken from the slice in front of them, where the other player's selecting, don't they gotta go clockwise? They select in the slice that's now in front of them. They don't get to pick whatever slice they want like the captain did. They've gotta go from the slice that, that is allocated to them. So the two tiles that are in, in front of them that they have to work with might not be optimal, but hey, that's the game. So what's up with these polyominoes? What are we doing with them once they're placed on the planet? I'm glad you asked, which you didn't. You're supposed to be interacting with me, Scott. Oh, uh, what do you do with these polyominoes once you get them <laughs> on the planet, Patrick? Please tell me more. Ah, each shape has two colors on it, representing your advancement track. So if I take a tile that is red and black, I'll place it on my planet and I'll move up those two tracks. Pretty simple. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the gameplay is going to revolve around those tracks. That's where you're going to become different from other players. So what do the advancement tracks do? First of all, every track has points available for how high you climb on the track, right? Simple right. stuff. They all have spots also where you're going to be able to get an extra advancement. Like you hit this symbol, then you get to advance on any other track. Let's look at each of these specifically because that's where the gameplay lies. You've got the civilization track, which has four points where you get to select a civilization card, which can be bonus points, a bonus tile, little bonuses basically. Mm -hmm. The water track simply has higher point thresholds. So as you're climbing up most of the tracks, so one point, Two points, three points. The water track is like four points, six points, eight points. You just get more points for going up that one. 
the green track, which is like vegetation or forest or something, that has spots where your advancement, when your advancement marker hits them, you get a little one by one piece. None of the shapes that you can select are one by ones, like small squares. This is where you get them, and it makes it easier to fill up your planet entirely. Mm -hmm. The red track involves a rover. Now, this is just a little bot. It's a little piece. It's going to go on your board on that tile, and it moves around anytime you activate the red track. Uh, it, it's looking for two things mainly. Life pods, which are on the board from the start of the play, and they're just points for collecting them. And meteors, which sometimes when you take a tile, it's got a meteor symbol, which means you take a little meteor token and you place it on there. And it messes with your endgame scoring unless you can get rid of it with a rover. Roundabout way, uh, the meters can prevent you from scoring at the end of the game. You want to get them off your planet. Lastly, the fifth track, that's your technology track, and has various points where you're going to unlock a little special ability. Like, you get your marker to here, then from now on, anytime you activate your rover, give its movement a plus one. Those are the five tracks. Okay. Play is going to continue until either one of the slices runs out of polyominoes, or a player fills their planet completely, or if someone takes a piece and they just don't have room on their planet to put it. You know, I, I, I took a big L because that's what was available. I don't have anywhere to place it. Okay, good. Game's over. At that point, you're going to score for your markers on the advancement tracks for how high they went up. And you get some points for cleared meteors. You get some points for collected life pods that the rover gobbled up. A good bit of scoring, though, is going to come from your planet. Completed rows and completed columns on the grid overlay. They're worth points so long as there isn't a meteor there. So like my middle row on my planet is 10 spaces long and it scores three points as long as there isn't a meteor somewhere in that row. And you go over literally every single row, every single column to get a number of points. Now, I, I didn't get into them at setup, but game end cards are placed between players. This is maybe my favorite thing with this game. Uh, if there's five of us at a table. In between every pair of players, there's going to be an end game card, which will say something like, collect the fewest life pods. So if you're sitting to my left, Scott, and that's the card between us, whichever one of us collects fewer life pods, we're going to score that card for five points. Pretty cool. Right. All in all, I had a really good time with this game. I think it's phenomenal. I'm really glad Ryan took the time to teach it to me. I remember a little bit of it from Origins. But mm -hmm. going back and hearing it again, I'm really interested in tracking this game down, and, and I think I want to get it. I know the complexity was there, but does it really come into being a big factor in the game? No, I wouldn't say. I, You know what? The complexity is kind of there, but not in the mechanisms that you're carrying out. It's more like, can I trigger something more? It, the, the complexity comes in... In the depth of the game. Now, this isn't a super deep game, but there are ways that you can like, okay, if I do this, if I select this tile, normally you're going to have a, a choice between two different polyominoes mm -hmm. and they're each going to have different colors on them. They're both different shapes. So there's a lot of, let's call them micro decisions. Like no matter what you do, you're going to get some benefit, but a collection of small tactical decisions can lead to bigger things down the road, cascading effects. Oh, if I do this, I get to move up this track, which lets me bump up another track, which is going to let me move my rover three to get rid of the meteor that I just played. Things like that. Uh, it has those chaining actions, right. which I really like. You couple that with your own personal puzzle of trying to like fill out the rows and the columns. There's a lot of game here for what's ultimately a pretty easy rule set, I think. Is there a lot of variability? It seems like there would be. You would think. Uh, well, that... What I described, that's the base way to play the game. 
symmetric all mm-hmm. around. And I think it's well symmetric aside from like the end game goals that are in between each other. Uh, and I think that that's fine. I think that's a great way to play this game. But what I didn't mention, and you might not know this either, that this game comes with multiple planet layouts. Oh. So when I was playing with Ryan, we each had a, a planet that was identical. He and I both had the same thing to work with. But I think there's like six different planets. Like one of them, I had I call it the church because it has like holes in it. So it's holy. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my. <laughs> um, you, can't, you can't place over the holes. Uh, another one of the planet boards, it's actually a grouping of three smaller planets with different oh, wow. grid layouts and scoring for it. So you have some, some asymmetry there. So you can mix things up a bit with the various grids that you have to work with. Couple that with the advancement boards. You can play with symmetric advancement boards or you can play uh, so that everyone has a unique advancement board. It's like uh, uh, one of them, for example, it allows a player to get two extra rovers on that rover track oh, right. yeah. and they all move faster. So that player is going to have a very different gameplay. They're going to be able to collect those pods and get rid of those meteors, no problem. They might be lacking on their civilization track. It might take them a right. long time to get just one civ card. So like – you can pair up any one of like a half dozen planets with any one of like a half dozen different advancement boards. That's going to totally make your game wow. different each time. Scott, I'm not a big polyomino guy. Like when when I sit down for a game, I want to I want to stand up and point fingers at each right, other. I want to negotiate. Right. I want to place bids. Polyomino games are fine, but they've never given me like the tingles. Right. Planet Unknown did. This is one that I absolutely want in my collection. My only hold up, and we don't get into this too, too often, it's expensive uh, for for what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, I always come back to like, man, I can get a, I can get Everdell for 50 bucks. I can, there's so many great games that are 50 bucks. It's hard for me to go, oh yeah, no, that, that one's worth a hundred dollars. And Planet Unknown falls into that vein too, where given the gameplay, mm-hmm. Great as it is, it is a little expensive. So this is another one that you're going to have to buy. Oh, 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 all right, all right. <laughs> Do you have another one for recent adventures? Well, nothing really as far as playtime, but Marvel <laughs> Crisis Protocol. Now, we're getting into miniatures game. Uh, I see they were trying to get that back to the table at yes, SCG, yes. huh? I went out the other day and I picked up a bunch of terrain, sat down one evening cut the stuff out and I'm just going to put together uh, this one building. And three hours later, I have like a whole block of buildings and trash cans and dumpsters and cars. This is something I think that miniature players will get into. I'm not sure about you because I'd be interested in seeing how you would get into this type of uh, like the miniature games and everything. My mind just went completely blank And I was just in the zone putting it together. So it's not really a play that I did, but it was more of an activity. I really realized how much I missed doing this and how therapeutic it really was. Let me ask you a question. What would you say you've done more? Played Marvel Crisis Protocol or assembled terrain, painted minis and what, like prepped to play it? Oh, totally assembled. (laughs) <laughs> that that's a hobby in and of itself though isn't it yeah yeah it is and i mean i look at it and i get things thinking oh this will work together with this one and this one here to play a game but lately i haven't really had the time to do things so i'm hoping that's going to open up soon in the future that i'll get a chance to get it out and get it to the table and play it i mean 
with weekends, the rent fest is over and I'm no longer working weekends. So that's awesome. You're free. Uh, so I get a chance to go out on a Saturday and play the game. The moment I get that brush in the paint and start putting the paint on the figures again, that is going to be a tremendous moment. I mean, I really got burned out on miniatures, but coming back to it, I never realized how much that really meant to me. It's it's a weird way of talking it, but just the way that it makes you feel and you just your mind just zones out completely and you just get into that moment of painting it and Oh, it was just such a great activity to do. You know what gives me that sensation? What's that? Beer. Well, well yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can, I concur. <laughs> the great okay. thing about this is you can drink beer while you're doing this. Now, I can't <laughs> say how good your painting is going to be after a couple, but you can <laughs> drink while you're doing it. Oh, it's that time our little Harold is back again with his little teensy tiny little trumpet. <laughs> so what do you have for us? We've got a couple. We've got uh, some Prime Movers Cascadia is up two spots to number 59 and Great Western Trail. Second edition is up to number 88. Those are highest peaks for those two games. We've also got a highest peak for Sleeping Gods up to number 84. And then we've got some birthdays. Nemesis, three years. Concordia for eight years. And how about this? Android Netrunner, still in the top 100, 10 years. Nice, nice. That's exciting. I, I still think that is such a great game. I hope that something comes up with it here uh, in the near future because it is just such a unique experience playing that game. Well, speaking of unique experiences, why don't you do the old walkthrough for today's review game, Block and Key? Let's go do it. Hey, adventurers. King Scott here, and today we're going to be looking at Block and Key, released in 2022 by Inside Up Games. In Block and Key, you're an archaeologist that has unearthed an ancient tomb. In order to enter the tomb, you must uncover keys to dig deeper into the tomb. Now, how do you do this? <laughs> Glad you asked. Block and Key is a dual-level game, meaning you have two levels you are playing on. The first level is where you will be choosing blocks to make a key to unlock the tomb, while the top level is where you will be placing the blocks to make said key. You will begin the game with two easy locks, one medium lock, and one hard lock card. On these cards, you will see patterns that you must create in order to score points. Each turn, you will have a choice of two actions. First, you can excavate blocks. Now on the lower level, you can draw three blocks from the 3x3 three three grid. Take all three blocks from a row or column. Second is position a block. You can choose to position a block on the top level and then, if possible, claim a key card of a lock you have just completed. Then refill your hand to four cards by choosing another medium or hard card. Positioning of the blocks has a certain set of rules as well. You cannot place blocks directly next to each other. They can only touch corner to corner. The only way that you can place them next to each other is if the block you're placing will make that block higher than the one it is next to. Finally, you can place a block making a bridge, but you cannot leave a block overhanging the side. Once placed, look at your cards. Did you complete a lock? Well then, score that card and draw a new card. <laughs> 
In an ingenious move, all the rules are printed on the board itself in hieroglyphics. <laughs> nice touch. The important part, how do you know if you completed a lock? This is the fun part. Since the board is elevated, it gives you a nice eye level to examine the pieces. Looking directly at the blocks, if a pattern on one of your cards matches that of what is on the board, you can score that card. Not from above, not from any angle, only straight from your side of the board. The game continues until a set number of locks have been uncovered based on the number of players. And yes, this number is also printed on the side of the board. Once all players have completed one last turn, you will then add up your totals from the locks you completed. Oh, and the Enigma card. The Enigma card gives you a color you will get extra points for, for how many times you can see it on your side. For every three blocks of that color, you'll get one extra point. So that's a quick look at Block and Key. Not that many rules, but a lot of strategy to this one. So let's go back and see what Patrick has to say about it and see what my thoughts are about it as well. But first, a little flavor read with music that makes no sense. Everybody get up. A temple long forgotten. A temple long forgotten hides mysteries whose keys may be unlocked. Some fear what lies ahead. We, however, cannot wait for a chance to try our hand, nay, our head, on these ancient grounds. Although we arrive together, our pride pushes us to unlock these secrets before our fellow archaeologists. Hey Scott, thank you for the walkthrough of today's review game, Block and Key. Adventurers, as you know, we like to give our review games the 8-bit breakdown. We're going to look at eight different facets of this game, tell you all about it, concluding with was it fun and who's it for. We're going to start as we always do, Scott, with the art and components. What do you think? All right. This game, I think, shines in its components. First of all, the board is made up of the game box. Yeah, uh, it's true. I'm not lying. Much like Mountains Out of Molehills, this game is a mm -hmm. double-level game. The bottom half is where you place the blocks, and the top is the main place to place them. The mm -hmm. ingenious thing with this is that they incorporated the rules into the box. The blocks are super uh, blocky. I, I They're guess <laughs> they feel like <laughs> actual stones, like something you would actually dig up. Like they yeah, went like a, a nice clay. Yeah. They went to a quarry and, and chipped them all out. I mean, really, really great material. The cards are nice. And the solo play features for this are also incorporated very nicely into the game. Now, what did you think of the art and components? I agree with you that the components are the standout, but like the art, it's kind of simplistic and there isn't a lot of it. I think that they knew that they don't have a game that's going to feature art here. They like, I don't want to say that they just like brushed it off, but there weren't many places to actually add art. It's not an art forward game, but it is a component forward game. And I thought they did a great job. I like that the structure fits into the box. Like my first, my first thought when I see something like this is, do we need to have two layers or is it a gimmick? And because you're looking at the structure of blocks that you, that you have in front of you at eye level, that it raises it up to your eye level, takes it away from like, get like, if we had two different boards, if one board was housing the blocks that you could select and a second board next to it instead of on top of it, next to it, 
had the blocks being stacked, you'd be doing that like lean down to the table constantly. And we didn't have to do that. So it not only was like neat to look at, but it's actually pretty practical too. Very much so. Yes, yes. Got to say the hieroglyphs, you started to talk about them and I gather that you're going to get into this later, but I put it in art and components because I think graphic design sometimes uh, should file into art and components. I don't know what any, like I would not call their hieroglyph reminder text on the side of the box slash boards. I wouldn't call them intuitive, Mm -hmm. but it's not a difficult game either. It's not like they super, like you don't need to reference them either. Right, (laughs) right. You know what I mean? Overall, the presentation of the game on the table, it's going to be an eye catcher. I thought the art, well, I thought the art was minimal. The components were nice. Let's get into theme and immersion. Scott had to look on BGG to get the theme here. Mm -hmm. Like I knew that it was an archaeological dig of some sort. Right. But let's be honest, this is an abstract game here. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, with theme and immersion. Now, this is where I get a little bit against you on this. Now, I look at this as being a double-edged sword. First of all, I never really felt like I was trying to fit blocks into certain keyholes in order to enter a tomb. That being said, I really like the theme of this, though. The board, the box, has the rules and what you can do on a turn printed on the components on the board. So like you said Mm -hmm. there, so you look at it and on the top, you see how you can place the blocks. You can't put them right next to each other. Put them next to each other only if they're taller than the other ones. Uh, Mm -hmm. All the different rules are put in there. You have a thing along the sides as far as how many cards you have to put out with one uh, to four players. Now, granted, you do need to look at the rule book first to get that all out. But once it's done, you really don't have to go back to the rule book again. You can put up the board and say, boom, let's play. So I really thought that that was great. Now, the bottom part of the board shows what you're allowed to do each turn. The columns going up show the conditions for one to four players, and the top board shows the rules for the placing of blocks. I thought it was very clever and very thematic. Whenever this was going out, I remember that Connor put out different things here with, like, um, what I want to say here, like brain teasers or things like that with hieroglyphs Mm -hmm. on the board as to trying to find them. So every day for like a week, there was a new one that came out, and you had to try and decipher it. I really enjoyed that. So I kind of did fall into the theme of it. As far as immersion into it, I wasn't really immersed in the theme, though. And they're not exactly trying to get you immersed in the game. You're not You're not like getting your hands dusty. You know, they're not trying to put you in those boots of the archaeological uh, archae- – Archaeology. You call this archaeology? <laughs> <laughs> they, I think they know that they don't have like – there's not implied story. There is an emergent narrative and that's okay because this isn't the kind of game that's supposed to evoke that. You started to tap into it a little bit. Bit number three talks complexity. This isn't a difficult game, is it? No, not really. You got, uh, what, a couple of axes to choose from on your turn. Uh, that's basically it, but it doesn't lack depth. Fortunately, in fact, I think if you're an AP prone type of player, I guess we should define that AP is analysis paralysis. Mm -hmm. So if you're ever playing a game with someone who it's their turn and like everybody else in their turn takes like 30 seconds, go with my gut. Like, oh, this might not be the most optimal move, but it's pretty good. The analysis paralysis person is the player that like it's their turn. And they take three times as long. They want to like <laughs> map out in their mind everything that they could do to truly come up with what's the best play. This 
it's a rules-like game. But technically, if you're an AP-prone player, like you could find yourself really puzzling out the perfect placements on the board because the, the options on a turn, while there's only two things you can do, the placement options are significant. They're, they're branching and, and they're obviously finite, but I mean, I'm sure if you mapped it out, there's probably thousands of different ways that you can place any oh my, given piece. Yes. What do you think? Complexity. Well, I agree with you. It's not a very complex game to play, yet placing the blocks is. This is one that if you're not good at spatial relations, you will find this a little difficult. I know my wife, I would not even begin to bring this up to her because having to look at something and match it to something else, she's she's terrible. But she'll be the first person <laughs> to tell you she is terrible at that. No um, good with spatial relations. She she dated a, a spatial once. Didn't work out. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my that one's free. goodness. Well, I'm, I'm glad it's free. <laughs> um, so making sure you place things where you need them while trying to complete your keys is a challenge, especially when you have others doing the same thing. So you could be sitting there going, I got all set up for the next turn. And then someone comes in and puts one right next to it and it totally screws up your entire thing. The spatial relations is a big, big thing there. The other thing that, I, that is clever in the game is their AI for solo version. It's not very heavy or anything like that, but still gives you enough randomness that you feel like you're playing with another player. I'm not going to get it much into the solo rules, but it works out really quite well. Now, this leads us into bit number four and the rulebook and learning curve. Rulebook. I think it was laid out really quite well. You open it up and you open it up again into like this big gatefold cover. And it gives you this whole thing of here's the quick and dirty how to play the game. And then let's go mm -hmm. into it step by step by step. You think that it's a little bit extra because you think that, oh, my God, there's so many pages. But then you realize the second half of the book is written in French. So you don't even have to worry <laughs> about that. <laughs> um, but really it's laid out nice, neat, concise, just about every game that I've gotten from inside up games, they've really had very good rule books laying things out. So once again, two thumbs up to them for that. What did you think of the learning curve? You know, before I get into that, I, I got to point out whenever I open a rule book and it's like 30, 40 pages, I'm like, oh no. And then I find out that everything after page 10 is in different languages. It's mm -hmm. like, Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Learning curve, Scott, there's not much to say. It's an easy game. You only have a couple of decisions to make on your turn, regardless of how branching or or seemingly infinite those can be. It's kind of like uh, the learning curve for a game of Tetris. Like yeah. you watch two blocks fall and you know how to play the game. It's just deciding where to place things is the important – like that's the chunk of the game. And that's not something that anyone's going to take a while to learn how to do. Uh, checkers. Checkers, there's basically no learning curve, mm -hmm. but you do start to improve on your play over time. And I think maybe that's where the learning curve is in block and key is that there's a lot of room for growth, a lot of room to become better at the game. It's not easy to figure it out, though. So so if there is a lot of room to become better, that must mean that there's some meat on the bones. Bit number five, where's the meat? Well, for me, I think the meat comes in deciding when to give up on a difficult lock, your cards, and discard it and take another one. You may be able to complete it, but then another person may place a block and mess up your whole plan. 
It's yeah. better to go for a simpler one than waste a good part of the game waiting for everything to line up for your maximum of four points. You need to stop and think that, hey, I can't wait for that perfect moment. You need to go for it and go for just nickel and dime your way through the game. Get those points that you can so someone else doesn't. And don't wait yeah. for that perfect opportunity to show itself because 99% of the time, it probably will not. There is a timing element to that, isn't there? Oh, very much so. Because on the sides there, you have different number of cards that need to be completed for one to four players. And I think four players is once seven cards are completed, the game is over. You finish up, everyone gets one final turn. There is a speed aspect to this. And that's definitely something that I put in where's the meat. I said, you know what? I mean, you can take low, medium, or high scoring goal cards. And the game ends when, like you said, a number of goal cards have been accomplished. They're like, you want a bunch of four-point goal cards, but you don't want to get stuck with them right. either, unable to complete some number of them. Or you are going to lose someone who's just churning out low-scoring but easier goals, and, and they're just going to rush the end game before you get your second or third four-pointer down. Mm -hmm. Very much so. I think there's some meat involved in like the efficiency of your action. So you need to choose a row or a column of blocks when you're selecting them. And you got to do that with it in mind that you want to satisfy your cards in some capacity, the keys. Then you have to place them in such a way so that you're not going to block, but block off other goal <laughs> cards. You don't want to block them off. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All the while, uh, particularly in games with three or four players, you also like when I place my block, if it is closest to me, that means the person on my right, from their perspective, they're able, that's essentially added to their board, mm -hmm. to their perspective as well on the far left of their viewpoint. There's a little bit of game in minimizing the amount that you're setting up other people with free blocks from their perspective. Right. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. Very much so. Um, now, could you get to a point where you're like selecting goal cards, counting on other people, setting you up in some capacity? Maybe. I don't think it's something to count on, but like there is some next level gameplay if you take it that far. There's, there is some meat on the bones to what is an otherwise very easy game. Mm -hmm. Bit number six, replayability and variability. Scott, with no variables whatsoever, I think this game's replayable because it's quick and it's challenging. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, your goal cards, they're going to vary. And the available patterns of like the blocks that you can select, that's always going to be different. But that isn't drastically going to change your play. You're always taking blocks and you're always positioning them to complete your goal cards. Right. Each player does have an Enigma card for the in-game scoring where like I want to see a whole bunch of greens and you want to see a whole bunch of reds. But again, that doesn't wildly change the arc of play. You aren't going to be trying out new strategies. There aren't any alternate win conditions. But honestly, I think that's okay. You know what? I, I'm not looking to play block and key because I want to try that new exploration strategy. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This game doesn't pretend to offer that. It, it's a quick abstract. I think the significant variable, though, is those player power cards. And if you want to make players feel unique, go for it. You want to keep an even kill matchup, leave them out. I personally, I really like the player powers. Replayability, yes. This is a game that you can replay any number of times there. It's a fun game. You never know mm -hmm. what blocks are going to be pulled from the bag. The locks that you draw, the cards are going to be different every time that you play. 
Your opponents will do different things and affect the overall game. The variability is limited, but it's the special power cards that I think really do the whole thing there and give your character a little agency to do something different. Aha, I used your word. Um, <laughs> agency. But adding more of those as an expansion would do a lot in this game to change up the variables. Put out a little expansion of here's eight more character powers. Something mm -hmm. simple like that would change up the game immensely without changing the basic recipe for what makes this game fun. And yet it doesn't need anything beyond what is the basic game. I think that's what you said that really nailed it down there is that it knows what it wants to be. That's it. It doesn't want to be something it's not. Every game has them, even those that we lovingly kickstart and follow all the updates. Let's talk downsides of block and key. I'll leave this one off, Scott. Sure. Okay. Um, the goal cards, they matter a lot. Uh, sometimes you're going to draw a four-point goal card and it's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And then other times you just add like one more block over here and aha, it scored, right? Uh, point is there is some luck of the draw in the goal cards. Also, this happens in a lot of games, but I think it bugged me a tad more in Block and Key because of downside number two, which is that this game is technically so simple, uh, like draw, place, scorecards, and that's the extent of it. Like, it, I think for some folks, they're going to find that simplicity a downside. I think some are going to find it an upside, so a little bit of a, you know, tit for tat, you mm -hmm. know, upside, downside. Now, I mentioned before that being AP prone can be a problem because there are, in fact, good and bad ways to place your blocks and the placement possibilities are so massive. And that AP issue is, in fact, a third, we'll call it a potential downside. If you're playing with like Herman the Accountant <laughs> who wants to like map out everything, that's going to that's gonna really bog it down. I think the game is at its best when it's played as a fun filler, more of a beer and pretzels type of game that you can put your brain to a little bit. But if someone really wants to dive in and try, try to play their best in the one area of the game where the decisions are presented, it can slow it down. It can bog down and ruin the experience. As far as downsides for me, I didn't really have that many. I, I can see the luck aspect of it that, yeah, you kind of like, ah, that sucks. The biggest downside that I that can be easily remedied, in my mind, is how quick the game can be over sometimes. With four players and you only need seven cards to finish out to, boom, you're done, the game can be over before you really get into it. Is that it. all? Is it It's if four players is seven? Yes, yes. I thought that scaled. Uh, no, it's it's more for less people because mm, what will okay. happen is you're going to have more pieces out with four players, so it's going to mm -hmm. be quicker to do that. So I see. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things that can easily be adjusted where you say, okay, we're going to go to 12 cards. Now, granted, that board is going to be full of everything. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I'm sure that they play tested and figured that seven was uh, a good number to go by. But it's just one of those things that it just seems like the game is over sometimes before you really get a chance to really dig into it. Ah, dig, dig into it. Dig, um, dig in. Well done. Okay. Oh, I need to put the clap track to this. Before I get past on this one. So number eight, was it fun and who's it for? Can I take this one? It's all yours. All right. Yes, it was fun. I really enjoy these types of games of placing blocks and matching patterns. I mean, placing blocks. I talked earlier about Acquire, how I enjoy Acquire, putting those blocks out on, on the board. And you talked about Foundations of Rome. 
but this is not going to anchor game night, but it will be played quite a few times over and over. You could play it in between games. You could play three games in a row and then move on to another game. I know personally, I really enjoy this game and the presence on the table will definitely draw players into this game. Um, mm-hmm. Who's it for? Anybody. I mean, I, I don't know if there's Oh, that's anyone. a cop out. Anybody. I, I, there's not any one group that I can think of that would be drawn to this more than anyone else. There could be the heavy, like the 18XX players. Look at that. Like, eh, that's not for me. It's one of those things of who's it not for instead of who's it for, if that makes sense. So, yeah, it, it does. But I'm surprised. I actually, for who's it for, I said the opposite. I said, you know, for me, I, I had a hard time trying to think of like, who would look at this and say, ah, oh, it's not for me? Because because it's simple, because it's a filler, like even your heavy Euro gamer can appreciate like a half an hour romp with like, oh, we're placing shapes. This is fun. You know, it, it's enjoyable. It's engaging. Maybe a little bit of a, an opposite take, which I guess that can be a good thing because just goes to show <laughs> that I, I did actually put the opposite. Uh, it doesn't overstay its welcome. Right. It's a game that I can confidently recommend is a lightweight filler, especially for families or an icebreaker on game day. For me, was it fun? It was fun. I I think it's going to fall into the realm of an also played kind of game okay. in my book. And that's probably because of the time frame. Most games that are a quicker filler, it doesn't make an impression on my brain like, oh, I got to get back to that. Right. I'm yeah. always delighted when I do. I'm never going to turn down a play of block and key. And it's a game that I'm happy to recommend. I don't know that it's a game that I'm ever going to be like, I've got to block and key. I have got to block right now, and I've got to key later. This needs to happen. Uh, I'm not jonesing for it, but it was a delightful experience. Well, good, good. There you have it, the 8-bit breakdown of Block and Key. Viticulture, the players find themselves in the roles of people in rustic pre-modern Tuscany who have inherited meager vineyards. They have a few plots of land, an old crush pad, a tiny cellar, and three workers. They each have a dream of being the first to call their winery a true success. You know, there's nowhere to rent in Tuscany. What? Uh, what? There's nowhere left to rent. The maestro said there's there's nowhere available in Tuscany. Really? Seinfeld? Oh, I, I I forgot that. I'm sorry. One year ago today, we did a leveled back episode, and it was all about viticulture. And Scott, I think our thoughts on it last year was that it's a classic worker placement that most players are going to enjoy playing. Yes, I, I agree wholeheartedly. This is um, another one of those Stonemaier games that's really do everything that you want a game to do. The sign of a good game is there are a lot of damn it moments in this game. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, it's certainly got a little bit of a luck factor, what with your visitor, your vine, and order cards that you draw. But that, honestly, that just keeps it interesting. Uh, I love that you have to consider both the summer and winter phases when you place workers. Like, don't commit too much to one mm-hmm. phase. You're, you're going to give your opponent free range over the other. And that bidding track for turn order on the, what do they yes. call it, the wake-up track, I think it was? Yes, yes. That to me was the biggest decision in the game and you have direct control over it and it was my favorite part of viticulture this it's a bit of a let's say a classic worker placement 
Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, so much with what you want to do, how you want to make your wines, where you're going to make the wines, how you're going to make yours better than everyone else. It's so full of what you may look at as being bad decisions because you'll go along here and, oh, I'm going to get irrigation. And then someone else comes along and they take a cottage to get an extra visitor. And, oh, I should have done that. Yeah, you do have a lot of eight. Like, it's very quick that players differentiate what they're capable of through the buildings that they're assembling. Yeah, it's one of those games that you you play and you could go into it saying, I'm going to take this thing and this path and it's going to be perfect. And you see someone else taking another path and then you have to stop and convince yourself your path is going to work out. Got to stay on track. Yeah, yeah. You got to be a Star Wars here and stay on target, stay on target, or else (laughs) you're going to just be throwing spitballs at the wall trying to figure out what's going to work and your plan's going to fall apart completely. So you don't really think of a game where you're making wine as being something that you need to be filled with intestinal fortitude to play, but you kind of do. Viticulture has the Tuscany expansion, which adds a ton of modules, but most folks now opt for the Essential Edition, which Cherry picks the best of those modules, puts them along with the base game. I haven't played Viticulture World yet. Have you gotten that one out yet, No, I have not, no. Okay, so it gives it the co-op mode. Uh, I'd like to try it, but it's – honestly, I'm not seeking it out to buy it. Like if someone offers a play – I'm going to join it, but it doesn't have, not going to lie, you know, we're looking back. We want to give our true thoughts. Mm-hmm. I'm not antsy to seek out Viticulture World and turn my Viticulture into a co-op game. You've always been more of the competitive player. Yeah, yeah. Well, what about you? Uh, any interest in seeking out Viticulture World? I think I want to get a few more plays of just Viticulture under my belt before I would explore out into that. It's like I want to get back into my rotation of playing things on BGA there as well, so. One year later, do we recommend Viticulture? Yes. <laughs> That's that simple. That's the extent of your thoughts. So I got to read out the paragraph here. Okay. Uh, it's an easy recommend. I think it might take a play or two for a casual gamer to figure it out. And a super serious gamer might find it a little bit light for their tastes. But I think of all the gamer types out there, right? Make a big old Venn diagram. You can have a pretty big overlap for folks mm-hmm. that are probably going to like this game. So if you're listening and you haven't played it, get on with it. You're probably going to like Viticulture. Exactly. Hey, Scott, I hear the Andrew music. Time for the Academy. I, I, let's get let's I, get smart. I thought I was hearing scratching at the door. That's who it is. Hi guys, my name's Andrew Davidson with AsForMyAbility.com. Growing up, my family was not what anyone would call outdoorsy. That doesn't mean I dislike being outside or I'm incapable of enjoying the vanilla sky as the sun slowly lumbers below a magnificent mountain range. However, about two decades ago, I produced my own doctrine for the tenuous relationship man has with the wilderness. Nature is trying to kill you. Don't believe me? In 2007, actor-director Sean Penn released Into the Wild, a biographical adventure true story about Christopher McCandless, an upper-class white high school kid who, for whatever reason, felt a strong call to live off the land in the middle of nowhere completely alone. 
After graduation, McCandless drove his nice car into a moderately sized creek and burned up every dollar to his name, which was around 25000 He strongly desired to live in a minimalist life by living at the Denali National Park and Preserve located in Alaska. McCandless's dead body was found by Alaskan hunters on September 6, 1992. His body showed signs of being dead for nearly a month before being found. McCandless survived a whopping four months in the Alaskan wild before dying from either starvation or eating toxic berries located within the area, which slowly poisoned his malnourished body and immune system to his eventual death. In the biopic film Amelia, where actress Hilary Swank takes on the role of the tenacious go-getter American pilot Amelia Earhart, even though in this writer's opinion, something about the whole film just doesn't quite land, pun intended. In the early 1930s, Earhart established multiple flying awards, first American solo to climb to an impressive 18,415 feet, first American to fly the entire North American continent and back, the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic at a record pace of 15 hours. Amelia was known to wear pilot outfits, you know, like khaki MC hammer pants, a brown leather flying jacket, goggles, known to smoke Lucky Strike cigarettes, or at least, you know, that's what it said in her contract, and was typically found at social functions with dirt or oil under her fingernails. Akin to her crass demeanor, especially for women at that time period, Amelia had big, big plans. In 1937, she promised to fly a two-person pilot plane that Amelia chose to fly along with Fred Noonan operating the navigation. The goal in 1937 was to fly around the world. However, towards the end of the journey, after gassing up, Amelia took off from Leh, New Guinea, headed for Howland Island, a tiny, tiny and ambitious spot to hit in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The operating procedure was to coordinate with U.S. Coast Guard ship Itasca, stationed at Howland Island. Unfortunately, weather was not the best, and the two ended up losing their check-in with Itasca. Radio problems plagued Amelia's ship, and while the Coast Guard broadcasted Morse code, the plane was not equipped to receive the code. Some thought that they may overshoot their mark and continue to the next check-in, at Honolulu, Hawaii. However, the two never made it to Honolulu. Popular opinion states that they drifted off course, crashed, and both died somewhere in the Pacific, although zero bodies or any plane parts have been recovered. The two simply disappeared into the clouds. The 2005 found footage documentary film The Grizzly Man tells the true story of Timothy Treadwell, a school teacher who dedicated every summer to live with grizzly bears in the Katami National Park, where he would record himself and the relationship he was ever so slowly establishing with the local grizzly clans. Unlike the aforementioned biopics, The Grizzly Man is composed of film shot by Treadwell himself. He believed humans could approach brown grizzly bears without showing any fear, standing your ground, and the animals will learn to accept the individual as part of their land, part of their family. In 2003, on Treadwell's 13th and final journey to the National Park, 
he happened to bring along the addition of his new girlfriend, Amy. Unfortunately, the lovers stayed past the summer and into October. Treadwell always had a pre-established flight out by the end of summer to return to the corrupt and polluted civilization he loathed until next summer. By October, the Katami Bears busied themselves with collecting food for hibernation. And that year, for multiple reasons, there sat a shortage of food, turning them far, far more aggressive than normal. Caught on camera, Treadwell is mauled and eaten alive, followed by his lover, Amy. One of the final scenes shows park rangers killing the aggressive bear with a shot to the head, opening its stomach, and pulling out from the stomach one of Treadwell's disconnected arms with a wristwatch attached, still ticking. Oh, I can still see it when I shut my eyes. So now that I've shown my work, repeat after me. Nature is trying to kill you. Before getting to the crux of this episode, a brief aside, if I may, and I'll make it quick. Yes, I'm well aware of reality TV shows like Naked and Afraid and Alone, to mention a few, but I've rejected giving them any credence because they're TV shows, and I doubt a hit show will be surprisingly, without due diligence, yanked off the air due to contestants being eaten by a lion or a bear. I mean, we have no clue what preventative measure those types of shows have in place that are just off camera. Am I right? Okay, so continuing along our examination of history, let our story begin with a distinguished Stoic individual named Percy Fawcett and the year of 1925. Fawcett is a 45-year-old British man with wife and kids. Before the war, he made numerous treks to South America on behalf of the Royal Geography Society, the RGS. Between 1906 and 1924, Fawcett made seven RGS-sponsored journeys to map Chile, Argentina, and the Brazilian Amazon rainforest. In 1914, while on journey in the Amazon, Fawcett found what he thought to be primitive pots and pans and other knickknacks, things never seen before and in an area not known for tribal settlements. Also, Fawcett found a 10-page manuscript written by an unknown Portuguese author. The manuscript was addressed to a Portuguese colonel with no name about a great civilization located in Mato Grosso, an undiscovered part of Brazil located deep in the center of the dangerous forest. Unfortunately, when the Great War broke out, Fawcett, the brave patriot he was, returned home to fight for his country. All the while, he never forgot about the Lost City, which he began to call the Lost City of Z, or Zed, because that's how non-Americans say Z, I guess. After the Great War, Fawcett is pushing 50 years old. He is well decorated for his wartime efforts and receives the Distinguished Service Order, given to, quote, military personnel in the service of His Majesty for outstanding command and leadership during active military operations, unquote. Before Fawcett grows too old for exploration, he desperately plans to end up back in South America to discover his lost city of Zed. In 1920, Fawcett sets off alone. He ends up having to kill his horse and turn back within a few weeks. Now, the next time, in 1924, Fawcett is financed by a large group of London investors. With an Amazonian exploration party proportionately financed, 
Fawcett leaves for Brazil with his eldest son, Jack, and Jack's longtime friend, Raleigh Rimmel. A fully funded exploration allowed for plenty of canned food, powdered milk, flares, plenty of ammunition, and a chronometer. Fawcett knew and dreamed of the expedition, and he knew it was going to be a success. He was determined and positive. He was old, but very, very well-trained and experienced. And the other boys were young, tough, and in good health. The journey was taxing as the men traversed deeper and deeper into the heart of the Amazon. They came across dangerous animals, striking weather, and indigenous tribes. Now, Fawcett developed a policy to not torture, kill, rape, harm, or steal from any of the tribes that they would come across. In fact, he was altruistic by giving some of his food to the indigenous tribes who provided them with shelter. The last known location of the troop is found in Fawcett's journal, which reads, Here we are at Dead Horse Camp, latitude 11 degrees, 43 south, and longitude 54 degrees, 35 west, the spot where my horse died in 1920. Ah, but Fawcett's coordinates were not quite correct. But how could a man with a lifetime of experience get his position wrong? How could he screw up the coordinates? That's like asking Tony Hawk to do a kickflip only to watch him fall on his bum. That's like asking Chris Rock to not make jokes on TV. That's like asking Rick Astley to give you up. Some people believe that it may have been a result of human error when copying down the coordinates to be stored for search party information. Others believe that the heat and constant fevers led Fawcett to becoming obsessed with the leaking of any information as to where the lost city of Zed may be located. He was paranoid that a search party would accidentally find his lost city before him and his gang. Dead Horse Camp became Percy Fawcett, Jack Fawcett, and Raleigh Rimmel's last known location. Naturally, there are a handful of conspiracy theories that I won't spend extra time delineating here. In 1929, the RGP had the men officially pronounced dead. The men were never found, not their bodies, not their bones, nothing. And that's even after Percy's wife launched many, many search party expeditions. In 1979, 54 years later, Fawcett's signet ring, the one that he was known to never take off, wound up in a British pawn shop. Now, this occurrence, 50-some years later, has given historians and conspiracy theorists new life that maybe, just maybe, after all this time, one of the travelers returned to London and hid behind the lights, in the dark alleys, among the masses, and under the flagrant corruption of civilization. Those of you who have not experienced the pleasure of losing at Robinson Crusoe, well, my heart hurts for you. There is no other game in existence where players have a ton of fun losing together. For the sake of brevity, I won't be walking you through how the base game plays. All you need to know is that in Robinson Crusoe, you and your friends try to survive on an island without catching a disease and dying, being torn apart by a tiger, freezing to death, or starving to death. For clarity purposes, I'd like to be specific about the game I'll be reviewing. This, I believe, is a seminal moment, as it will be my first foray into reviewing an expansion instead of a base game. The expansion on the docket for review is 
Robinson Crusoe Mystery Tales, a campaign expansion to the regular Robinson Crusoe game. Both products are produced by Portal Games and designed by Ignacy Trevichek. The Mystery Tales expansion stays relatively true to the base game mechanics. The significant appeal of Mystery Tales is receiving new pieces, new cards, new tiles, and also a five-game mini-campaign booklet titled The Lost City of Z. The Lost City of Z takes one to four players on a short campaign narrative adventure. The primary objective of the campaign is to travel to South America, locate Percy Fawcett, and discover his secret city. Now, you rest your pretty little head as I have not included any spoilers in this review. The box contains the campaign book, an old weathered journal, and an envelope that reads, Contains Colonel Fawcett's Diary. Do not open unless instructed. In the Lost City of Z campaign, each scenario progresses you a little further into the story, further into the jungle. As I've already sworn off spoilers, I will simply say there are plenty of plot points and surprises to keep you and your friends entertained. The supermassive downside to the campaign is that anything Ignacy's finger touches turns to be tough as nails. Each scenario adds more objectives and prerequisites on top of keeping you and your mates alive. The campaign is punishing, sure. But the look of the booklets, the tokens, the art, the writing in the journal, the production, everything is beyond par. While it is a longer game, there are only five games to the campaign, which makes it easier to sweet-talk your friends into signing up for the ride. Honestly, this is a stellar production. If you've ever dreamed of a Robinson Crusoe legacy game, well, this is as close as you're going to get for the time being. And hey, if nothing else, pick up a copy for more cards, more tokens, more tiles, more stuff. Or if you're feeling frisky, hop on board as we leave civilization and penetrate deeper and deeper into the heart of darkness. My name is Andrew Davidson. I hope I have given you something to think about. Once again, Andrew, fantastic segment. Thank you so much for this once again. Yeah, we love this segment. Thank you so much, Andrew. I gotta say, I feel bad for Percy, but gotta love some Robinson Crusoe. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Time for Adventures on the Horizon, and this one comes from Henry Audubon, and publishing credits go to Paper Fort Games, but also Stone Sword Games. In fact, I heard about this because the development team reached out and said Stone Sword told them to get in some plays with Level Up, so thank you to, uh, to Stone Sword Games. Okay, weird theme here. <clears throat> Players play as devotees competing to prove their loyalty to the great Inky one, a mysterious celestial octopod. Yes, think octopus in space. This game is called Cosmoctopus. It plays one to four in about an hour, and it's a bit of an engine builder based on a grid of tiles that make up the main board in the center of the table, coupled with the cards that you're going to be acquiring throughout play. And the goal of the game is to be the first player to collect eight tentacles. Now, a player turn in the game is actually really simple. You move the Cosmoctopus, which is a piece on like the grid board in the middle. Then you play a card, 
And then you discard down to eight if you're over the hand limit. So let's start with moving the Cosmoctopus. This is a piece on that grid board, as I mentioned, that you simply move to an adjacent tile and you gain the bonus as shown on that tile, which is oftentimes gonna be drawing cards or gaining one of the four resources, coins, ink, whispers, and stars. You can move further if you like, but it costs a resource per extra movement. Next up is playing a card, which you'll probably be doing every turn uh, to get a better idea of how the game functions. Let's go over each type of card here because th these cards are where the engine and I think the bulk of the gameplay lies. So first up, scriptures. These are like permanent discounts for the resources shown on the card. So if I play a scripture that shows two coin symbols on the bottom, then I'm basically always going to be paying coins at a discount of two. Think of these like uh, economic benefit cards. Yeah. Next up are relics, which are like upgrade cards. You might do something like, when you gain a whisper, gain two instead. Neat enough, and they're stackable, so they help you like focus on hammering one like resource type and, and going nutty on it. Mm -hmm. Hallucinations are like sorcery cards in Magic the Gathering. You pay for them, you get a one-time benefit, like a one-shot deal. And these are not cheap little effects. I think when Chris and I demoed the game, we maybe had three or four hallucinations get played, and they were game changers. Finally, you've got constellations, which are one of the main ways cards offer tentacles. These cards basically have a recipe of resources that you have to pay and an order in which you have to pay them. So like you play the card and it stays on the table in front of you. From there on, if you gain a resource, if it's the next ingredient required by the constellation, you can put it on that card instead of gaining it. Oh, when the card's whoa. full, it usually gives you a little benefit of some sort, but you're also going to get a tentacle, which, don't forget, eight tentacles wins the game. The last variable for Cosmoctopus, and one that I actually focused on in my play, is the Forbidden Knowledge Tokens. There's one for each of the four resource types in the game, and all these do is that at any point... You can pay 13 of the same resource to claim its respective token, granting you two tentacles. Now, in, in our play, I actually coupled it up. I had the scriptures that were giving me discounts on ink. So, like, I was able to get one of those tokens for, like, I don't know, six. <laughs> real cheap. All in all, I got a really good first impression from this game. I like that while the rules are easy, there's still a lot of depth here. I like that they're branching strategies depending on the cards that you play, like, uh, as I said, in our game, I went for scriptures to get those tokens and get them at a discount. But you could also shoot for like multiple constellations or stacking discounts or I'm going to just hammer out these hallucinations, the sorcery cards, right? It's all based on being clever when you're moving around the grid board. Another neat variable to the game, though, you don't have to play with a three by three grid. You can mix it up and create the board in like a giant circle, a big plus sign. Sounds good. Point is, there's a lot of strategy and variability for what is a relatively easy rule set and a compact playtime. All right. So who's this one for? You know what? It's interesting. This uh, we've <laughs> Scott, we've had a knack lately for getting games that have like a, a pretty easy rule set, but they can have some depth. They've got some some play beyond just the surface level play. Um, it has enough depth that I think that I could play this with the lobsters. You and I could sit down and play with a couple, like we could play with uh, Jason, who's, you know, we'll, we'll call him a Euro gamer, and we're going to get a lot out of the game. But I could still play it like in a family setting. I could play it with casuals and they're not going to have any issue learning it. Uh, I, You know, I'd always hesitate to say, like, oh, a game's for everyone. I, I can't pull that off here. But I think a lot of folks are going to like this one. Keep an eye out for the Kickstarter. It's coming up soon. I think they're shooting for the end of October. I was really surprised by how much depth there is in this game. That's Cosmoctopus. Cosmoctopus. 
Well, it's come to that time. Episode 73 draws to a close. Scott, let's finish this one the way we always do with our level up since last episode. For me, Scott, this one's easy. Prepping is complete for PGX Con. By the time Mm -hmm. this episode's live, the con was last weekend, but we're recording just before it. I got some stands set up. I got the the hats and like our little level up pouches with coins and dice. Like (laughs) things are ready to roll. We got our our demos are ready. Uh, Later on today, we're going doing one more walkthrough of our our panel that we're going to do. We're playing some wits and wagers. Like, dude, it's funny. Like this is smaller, significantly smaller than Origins Gen Con, obviously. And it's, for that matter, it's much smaller than PAX. Oh, yeah. I think I am more excited for this than any of the other cons we've done so far. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. And I think the main thing is that it's in our backyard and we're going to get a chance to see a lot of people we know. That's a big thing with cons for me in that you get to see your friends and hang out with them. That's a big thing there. Tell me, Scott, how'd you level up? Well, my level up was a bit heartfelt and I was humbled beyond belief by all the love from the cast, the vendors, the national acts at the Renaissance Festival on me leaving the festival. For the last hour and a half of the thing, I was just a sobbing mess. Uh, But one of the sweetest things that they did, they actually got a Monopoly game and completely rewrote it and reskinned it for Renopoly. (laughs) So they have different things of different quotes (laughs) that I would say and different pictures of me on the railroads. And it's just such an amazing thing. I got to get a, I got to glue down a couple places there to really keep it in good shape. I want to frame it and then I'll have to get a picture up on uh, social media here to show everyone Absolutely. the amazing people that I got a chance to work with for 15 years. Well, that's wonderful. Adventures, if you haven't listened to last week's side quests, it's Familiars and Foes. That's live on Kickstarter. It should be right now. You can get on there and check that game out. Next week, I think we're going to be doing some God Tier with Will, the Hungry Gamer Brown, if I can get him to coordinate meeting up with us. And Fingers crossed. We'll find out. Scott, last word's all yours. All right. So I got a toast from this past year here. I really like this. So good ships are wooden ships, but sometimes they sink. But the best drinks are friendships, and to those, we drink. Thank you, adventurers, for joining us for this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, always do what you can to level up.